Good morning. Jesus is portrayed by the New Testament historians Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and remember what he's based on what he's doing, who he's hanging out with at the time that the snapshot is taken of his life and what the circumstances are. So in today's sermon, we're going to find Jesus descending from a Galilean hillside where he had delivered his most famous sermon. You understand you guys have been going through that the last few weeks. And he's going to enter a Jewish fishing village called Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, Peter's hometown. And on his way down the hill, literally, and certainly after he gets into town, he's going to demonstrate his power over disease by healing multitudes of people. He'll start with a leper, then he'll move to a centurion servant, and then Peter's mother-in-law, but eventually probably most of the town that has any health issues shows up at his door, and before dark, they all get healed. Jesus was a number of things, but one of the things he was while he walked on this earth is he was a healer. So after we review Matthew's account of these healings, We're going to look at different views on divine healing. I'm going to take you through a real fast uh, journey through church history and the different periods of church history and what divine healing looked like or didn't look like during those periods of time and different theological positions even today on this topic of divine healing. But before I even get to the text or start talking about the text or church history, I want to encourage you to consider the bigger picture. And let me be an agent of reality before I go hyper-supernatural on you in just a few minutes. Everyone that Jesus healed, everyone eventually died. Most of them died of disease. That's a wonderful, comforting thought to start a talk on healing, isn't it? (laughs) Sickness and death are part of living in a cursed world. The same is true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. Even for Christians like me who strongly believe in divine healing. But in spite of that, Jesus still heals. I strongly believe that. And that's the position of this church. Jesus still heals physically, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. He still heals. I know him experientially in that way. And I know that many of you do in this room. So let me start with another passage of scripture before we even get to the Matthew passage. I'm going to start with what's referenced by Matthew in the text we're going to read this morning is an Old Testament passage written about 700 years or so before Jesus will be crucified. And we'll talk about his blood being an atoning sacrifice. Before that ever happens, about seven centuries before, Isaiah saw it all prophetically happening and probably the most famous messianic passage in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 53. And the few verses in there are controversial, the way they're um, interpreted today. But there wasn't a problem with the Jews. I knew exactly what it meant in Jesus' day. But let's read that passage of Scripture that will be referenced in our passage in Matthew in just a minute right now. It's Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. The prophet says this, speaking of Messiah, Surely he took up our infirmities. That word means basically sicknesses, weaknesses, our fallen nature, our relational separation from God. That's all encompassed in that word infirmities. And he carried our sorrows, the sorrow that comes as a result of being separated from God and living in a fallen world. 
Yet we considered him when he was being crucified, stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, that literally means relational peace with God, was upon him. And then the controversial part of this is, by his wounds we are healed. And I would argue the word means physically, spiritually, relationally, and emotionally. So, what else can we say about this whole concept of, uh, of healing? Well, let me say this about this passage of Scripture I just read in Isaiah. The Old Testament passage seems to indicate, at least, that ultimately Messiah's sacrificial death, we call it, looking back now, we've got a fancy word for it, we call it the atonement. The atonement will someday deliver us from disease, death, sorrow, even our own sin nature. Jesus did all that for us on the cross. And I believe that there's salvation, not only salvation available for us, but supernatural power now in this atonement that can still bring in the 21st century, not just the 1st century or the 2nd century or the 3rd or the 4th, can even bring now divine healing of the body. But not always, not always. And certainly no one can realistically argue that their healing is complete, at least physically, this side of heaven. The death rate is still running right at 100%. And disease is still the most common cause of death, even for Christians who believe in miracles like me. There is, however, again, supernatural power now in the atonement and in the blood of Jesus. There's somewhat of mystery, we have to admit, around this whole concept of supernatural or divine healing or miracles. The sovereignty of God, like it or not, has to be factored into all of this. The fact that we live in a fallen world has to be factored into all this. The fact that our bodies are aging, or as Scripture says, wasting away. Love that thought. 2 Corinthians 4.16, if you want to read it. Many theologians put it like this, and I agree. The kingdom is now, but not yet. The kingdom is now, but not yet. Meaning we can experience the power of God now, but not in its fullness. Someday we will, but not yet. So with all that, and that's a lot in mind, now turn to Matthew chapter 8. And I'm going to read and lightly exposit 17 verses of Matthew chapter 8, my assigned text. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man. Most of you know the stories like this one from the New Testament. That was forbidden for a Jew to touch someone with leprosy. People were scared to death of leprosy. It was a terrible disease back in the first century. won't go into the details of it. And he touches the man. He doesn't have to. We'll see that in the next healing story. He doesn't have to touch anybody to heal him. If he doesn't want to, he can just say the word. But he touches him. And he says, I am willing. And he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. Why would Jesus say that? A couple of reasons. You're going to see he wants him to go to the priest. And he wants to witness to the priest by this miracle. And if the priests hear about it in advance, they'll start coming up with excuses and doing everything. So he wants him to go straight to the priest. And he didn't want to be mobbed every time he comes into a town. So what does the guy do? Well, we learn from a parallel passage in Mark. Mark and Luke both share some of these stories. 
in their accounts of what happens when Jesus comes down off the mountain. They're similar. He says the guy literally went out, disobeyed Jesus completely, couldn't contain himself, and told everybody he saw to the point that Jesus could no longer enter villages without being mobbed and had to set up camp from then on outside of town in most cases. He doesn't go to the priest, but Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, and he says, do the Leviticus 14 thing. I hadn't got time to develop that. It's really complicated what he's telling him to do. Offer all these gifts Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Don't miss this. Jesus is concerned about his enemy's salvation. He knows they're going to oppose him and eventually kill him, but he wants to offer himself to them through validating his deity. Next healing story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, have you ever noticed, if you've read the New Testament a lot, that all the Roman centurions mentioned in the New Testament, there are several, are always mentioned in a positive light? I'm just throwing that out there. It's true. All of them are mentioned in a positive light, this guy included. And we know from a parallel passage in Luke that this guy's friends who are Jews come, in fact, the leader of the synagogue goes first before he sees Jesus, and it treats Jesus to help him because this guy was a friend of the Jews in Capernaum and had paid for their synagogue to be built. This centurion comes to him. He's a commander of 100 Roman soldiers. And he asked for help. And he said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. You know, from Luke's passage, he's a young boy or maybe a teenage boy. He's a young male servant. And Jesus said to him, I'll just go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but you just say the word and it'll be so. And my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. Key point there. By the way, well, we'll look at this in a minute. Jesus is under authority too. He's under the Father's authority because he submitted himself to the Father and laid aside his deity in some way we don't fully understand when he came to earth. But in submitting himself to the Father's authority, he has authority over demons, over sickness, over disease, over storms, over you name it, death even while he's on earth. And this Roman centurion somehow knows and believes that. And he says, I've got soldiers unto me. I tell one to go, he goes, come, and he comes. I'll say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He just says, I believe he can do it. Just say the word. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. And he said to those following, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The leper exhibited faith. This Roman centurion's exhibiting faith. And Jesus responds in both cases to that faith by doing miracle for them. He says, I say to you that many will come, Jesus speaking now to these Jewish followers behind him, and he goes prophetic on us. And he's quoting Isaiah 49, and he's setting us up for the Great Commission. God always wanted it to go global to every ethnic group, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He says, it's not going to be just Jews at the big party, folks. It's going to be these Gentiles like this guy. He says, in fact, some of you ain't getting in. That's scary. And he says, people will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, he's talking about the Jewish brethren, will be thrown out in darkness, the ones that don't believe, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two things I would note, the gospel for everyone, and there's consequences to rejecting it. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go. It will be done to you 
just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Second healing story. Here's the third one. It's a little quicker, a little less detail given. We know from parallel accounts in Luke and Mark that as Jesus is entering the house, people come to him. It's Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She probably wasn't even able to say that she was sick. She had a high fever, may have been delirious. They say, hey, she's sick in the back room. Why don't you heal her too? So somebody had some faith. We don't know how much. He just healed two other people. And she was in bed with a fever. He touches her hand. The fever leaves. She gets up. She's well enough to start cooking and waiting on everybody. And uh, I'm sure the men like that. When the evening came, many who were demon-possessed showed up at the door. As it starts to get dusk, people with demons start to show up. People are bringing them probably. And he just simply drives out the spirits with a word. And it says, just a footnote, oh, by the way, he healed all the sick. Probably all of the town. If you were sick, you're going to show up. Everybody in town that's sick gets healed most likely. Now here's the passage I read earlier. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. So do you think that Matthew thought that the atonement just meant spiritual healing? Be intellectually honest. (laughs) Apparently not. Matthew knew that the atonement had something to do with physical healing as well. Okay, moving on. Let me make a couple more comments about the passage, and then we'll go to church history. Why did Jesus do miracles? There's probably lots of reasons, but here's three. Number one, to demonstrate God's love and goodness. I don't know about you. I'm going to be honest. I struggle sometimes when I look around and I see all the hurt and I hear all the stories as a pastor I get to hear and uh, I still read the newspaper. Uh, that's that thing that comes to your house sometimes, you know, for the younger crowd. And, and, and when I look on my phone and get news or whatever, the world is in terrible shape. And I start to question the goodness of God. God, why did you set this thing up like this? Has anybody in here ever questioned the goodness of God? I have. So Jesus was demonstrating by healing people of of their addictions, by healing people of their diseases, by casting out demons, that God is good. That's one reason he did miracles. The second thing was to demonstrate Jesus' divine power and authority. It was about authority, and Jesus wanted to note, Matthew 28, 18. One of the things that Jesus said in several places was, he said, I came to ransack the house of the strong man. It looks like this, folks. Adam and Eve, our ancient ancestors, were given the title deed to the planet. They were given stewardship of the planet. Early on, they handed it over to the snake. The snake's been wreaking havoc for thousands of years. The second Adam, the son of man, came to take back what the first Adam gave up in the garden. And he had to do it according to rules written before the dawn of time that required the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. That's the gospel, by the way. And he did it. So in Matthew 28, 18, when he says, 
all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. It's literal. And he can delegate that kingdom authority in the first century, and he can delegate that kingdom authority to us in the 21st century. Just a thought. Number three, third reason Jesus did, did miracles, to fulfill Old Testament prophecies as a sign to the Jews. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 specifically, we'll see that quoted. Let me just read it to you. One of the transition characters between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, who is it? It's John the Baptist, right? And John is in prison and he's suffering. He's about to be beheaded. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he's, John's starting to doubt, are you really the Messiah? I mean, I thought the Messiah was going to kick out the Romans and we were going to be on top and all this stuff. And, and Jesus quotes a passage of Scripture in Isaiah that talks about the Messiah healing people to tell John that he's the one. Let me just read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. Jesus replies to John's disciples, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The Jews would have known this. Messiah was supposed to do this. They knew these messianic passages. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. That's Isaiah 61 on that last part. Blessed is the man who does not fall away as a Jew, he would say, on account of me. Next thing I would note about these healing stories. Faith is a key element in the healings described in the text today and in most of the healings done in the New Testament, but not all of them. Sometimes Jesus just heals just because he can. Now I'm going to break down church history for the next 10 to 15 minutes and talk about periods of time in church history there's all kinds of ways I could break them down, but I'm going to break them down into some pretty big chunks. The first one's about a 500-year chunk if we pull up that first timeline. And uh, three parts. This is the first part. And I'm calling this the early church period. Starting at Pentecost, about 30 AD or so, and going to the fall of the Roman Empire, which is 476 AD. You could put a lot on that timeline. I've put one thing on the timeline. It's called the Edict of Tolerance, if you know what that is. A guy by the name of Constantine, if you know the story, uh, became a Christian in a miraculous way in a battle, and, and he decided it would be good if the Roman Empire embraced one religion. So he started trying to, when he became emperor, uh, impose Christianity on the Roman Empire. And eventually, it didn't happen immediately in 312, but that's the Edict of Tolerance, which meant... We're going to tolerate Christians. We're not going to stop persecuting them. And beginning with that point in time, eventually, it takes about 50 to 75 years, but eventually Christianity will become the established religion of the Roman Empire. may have been a bad thing. may have been a good thing. You can, we can argue about that forever, but it happened. And then the Roman Empire fell in 476 A.D. That first period is called the early church period. I'll talk about it in just a few minutes. The next period of time in church history is called the ecclesiastical period. This is a long period of time, a little over a thousand years. It, it's from the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 A.D., to the official beginning of the Reformation in 1517. That's when that guy by the name of Martin Luther penned those 
words on the door of Wittenberg Castle Church and that officially started the Reformation, but it began probably a couple of hundred years before that, the seeds of it had. But that period of time is called the ecclesiastical period. The Dark Ages are in there when the barbarians took over the Roman Empire and Christianity nearly was extinguished. And there's a group of people, there's a lot I could make note of. I'll talk about several in a few minutes, but I want to make note now of one called the Waldensians. We'll talk about them more in just a few minutes. Cool group of people in about 1,200. And they move out of northern Italy into France, and there's a lot written about them. More on that in just a few minutes. But that's the ecclesiastical period. The last one is the Reformation and the post-Reformation period. That's the period we live in today. Uh, in that period, there's all kinds of things happening. There's tons of revivals and spiritual movements in Western civilization. The Great Awakenings, First and Second Great Awakenings in America and in Europe. Uh, the Protestant mission movement starts probably with the Moravians in the 1700s. And then there's the rise of Pentecostalism in 1901. And throughout the 20th century, I could have put in stuff like the Jesus movement and the charismatic movement, lots of other things. Again, I'm trying to relate these things to the topic this morning of divine healing. Now, let me begin to talk about these periods of time. Before I do, I'm going to share with you four views on divine healing in church history. There's lots of different subsets of these, but I've tried to simplify these down into four. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, I have been different, I've held different of these views during my 66 years on the planet, and probably some of you have if you're older. I was taught one way, I now hold to a completely different view of divine healing as it relates to the church today. I hold to the fourth view, and that's the view espoused by New Heights Church. But the first one is, is this, and it was first, um, I guess, made famous just a few hundred years ago in church history by John Calvin. And, and there's some things I like about Calvin. There's some, this is not one of them. Uh, Calvin said this, All divine healing of the human body and other Christian miracles ceased entirely with the death of the last apostle. That would be about the end of the first century. I would call that extreme cessationism, that view. Uh, I've just got to be honest. There is absolutely no scriptural support for this view. And there's no historical support for it either. It clearly flies in the face of the written testimony of the early church fathers for the first 500 years of church history. Second view. All divine healings and other Christian miracles ceased very early in church history with the establishment of the church and particularly the codification of the New Testament. That would be early 4th century in the 300s. And there's no longer any need of healings as divine credentialing of the church. Uh, there's a lot of ter terms for this. I would call it dispensational cessationism. That's a mouthful, I know. But the idea here is that miracles were not needed because the church was established. We have the New Testament. The only scriptural argument that can be used for this is what I would consider a very strained and strange interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Probably a lot of you have been exposed to this teaching. I was early on. And, and the argument goes like this. When the perfect comes, that's I'm quoting from the passage, the imperfect, meaning some of the spiritual gifts, will pass away. 
and we won't need them anymore. And it says, then we will be know him or know just as we are also known. Well, it's clearly talking about a person that we'll know, and it's referring to the time when Jesus will be here, not when the book will be written. The church began at Pentecost. The New Testament was codified again in the early 4th century. We have a lot of documented accounts of miracles and healings much later than the 4th century. We're going to see that in a moment. Third view from church history. I'll spend a little more time on this one. Divine healings faded as the church moved into the dark ages. That's probably true. At least they diminished a lot. And are at best extremely rare since that time period. Let me just comment on this period of time. It may be true that legitimate and substantiated divine healings dwindled as the church became more and more corrupt during the period after the fall of the Roman Empire and before the Reformation, the ecclesiastical period. The superstitions abounded. If you've ever read any of the accounts, they're just flat weird. The exaggerations combined with the corruption of the church made it difficult to tell whether there were very many legitimate healings during the period of the Middle Ages. The reports are simply not trustworthy. But even if miraculous healings dwindled during this period of time, does not mean that when a more pure and undefiled faith would begin to emerge in about 1200, that miracles wouldn't again appear, legitimate miracles wouldn't begin, wouldn't begin to reappear in the church. Even during the Dark Ages, though, there were godly men and women in the Catholic Church during this period who reported miracles and healings that are accepted by almost all church historians. Two examples are Bernard of Clairvaux and somebody you've heard of, St. Francis of Assisi. The brightest spot during this period was the appearance of the group I've already talked about, the Waldensians in Europe in the late 12th century. Their accounts of healings are accepted as credible by almost all church historians. They were the forerunners of groups you may have heard of, some of you, the Moravians, the Huguenots, the Covenanteers, the Friends, that's the Quakers, the Anabaptists, a lot of you are theologically out of that strain of theology, the Anabaptists, and the Methodists. All of these groups, by the way, reported numerous divine healings associated with the early days of their movements. Fourth view from church history of divine healings. Divine healings have never ceased, but they've ebbed and flowed in number for various reasons throughout church history. I think that's the most rational, biblical, and historically provable position about divine healing. It's supported by scripture and by church history. More comments on this. For the first 500 years of Christianity, all the way through the Christianization of the Roman Empire until the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD, miraculous healings attributed to Christians were reported by all the early church fathers and all the early church historians. These reported divine healings clearly extended beyond the first century, no doubt. They were reported by Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Origen, Chrysostom, Augustine, and Anthony. No objective view of church history can honestly conclude that miraculous divine healings among Christians cease with the apostles. Now, let me admit this. One of the continuing problems throughout all of church history is the many exaggerated claims 
of healings published and spread by Christians, causing skeptics and even some church historians to discount or totally disbelieve all accounts of divine healing. Another problem, still with us today, has been people claiming to heal who can't and who are staging healings for money or notoriety. Obviously, that problem still exists today. Let me move to the Reformation, the post-Reformation period, and name some people and some groups. Martin Luther, the champion of the Reformation, he was a skeptic of pseudo-miracles of the ecclesiastical period, but he gives several accounts of legitimate, legitimate miracles he saw, including a very detailed account of the healing of his friend Philip Melanchthon in response to the prayers of Luther himself. The Moravians, one of the most popular groups and respected groups in all of church history. They're in the 1700s, Central Europe. They documented numerous divine healings. I love this. But they considered it an ordinary event that God would miraculously heal somebody through the Holy Spirit. And they thought it spiritually immature to make a whole lot of noise about it. <laughs> Next group. The Scottish Presbyterian Covenanteers of the 17th century also. They were harassed, imprisoned, tortured, and executed by the Catholic Church and the Scottish government. In a 28-year period of time, it's estimated that 18,000 to 30,000 of them were executed or banished to the mountains, were most starved or froze to death, or they were shipped off as slaves. But as is often the case, where persecution of Christians is intense, so are powerful manifestations of the Holy Spirit. There were many, many detailed accounts of miraculous healing by this group of Christians that were well-respected by church historians, including several accounts of the raising of the dead. Richard Baxter, the great English Puritan of the 17th century, tells of miraculous healings that he was a part of. George Fox, the famous Quaker of the same period, records seeing many divine healings, and he gives specific accounts. Here's some others from the 1800s. R.N. Torrey, an evangelist that was the dean of Moody Bible Institute, gives numerous accounts of divine healings. Dr. Charles Cullis, this is a cool guy if you want to read about him. He was a respected Episcopal physician in Boston who opened up homes for the terminally ill and begin to believe in healing by faith. And he documents many people that were healed in his, in his homes of terminally ill diseases. And he was respected worldwide. Here's another guy, A.B. Simpson, founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And then we move to the great revival movements in Europe and Asia and Africa and South America over the past two to 300 years. Thousands of divine healings associated with them. The same is true of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements, which swept the entire world in the 20th and 21st century. That movement's still going on today. Even if you make allowance for exaggeration, and you have to. Biblical basis for divine healing today. Here's some arguments I would make. Let's start with the weakest and go to the strongest. Number one, Jesus healed the sick when he was on earth. Hebrews 13, 8 says this. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He can still heal sickness whenever he wants to. Number two, the apostles and the other Christians 
performed numerous miraculous healings after Pentecost. It was routine in the New Testament. If you want to just turn to one, it'd be Acts 14, 8 through 10, but there's dozens of these. This is still the church age. There's no reason they should stop. Number three, bodily healing is promised, as we just saw in Matthew 8, 16 and 17, and Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 as part of the atonement. Number four, John 14, 12 through 14, quoting Jesus on the last night of his life before he was crucified. He says this, greater works will my followers, not just the disciples, but those that come after him, he's going to pray for, that's you and me and the ones that will follow, will do than I have done. Number five, probably the strongest argument, the New Testament in numerous places mentions gifts of healing. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 is one example, to be used by the church. And then a specific prescription is given in James 5, 14, 16. Prayers of faith and anointing with all offered by the elders of a local church. In just a few minutes, we're going to do that in the back. You'll have an opportunity to be prayed over and anointed with all if you choose to do so. Lots of people did that in the last service. Let me just read the passage of Scripture. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sins, he's not saying necessarily that his illness was related to sin, but it could be. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins or renounce your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Points to keep in mind. God doesn't promise us to heal us, physically at least, to the uttermost while in these mortal bodies. Who's ever been healed and never, ever, ever gotten sick again in any way? The most devout men and women throughout church history with healing gifts all died within a normal lifespan. Most of them from disease. Belief in the gospel brings us the forgiveness of sin in the here and now and also eternal life in the future where we'll be free from disease after death. The forgiveness of sin is not withheld from anyone, a sincere believing heart, yet many devout men and women, including Paul, have prayed for healing and not received it. I do believe Paul's thorn in the flesh was physical. There's plenty of indication of that. Another example is second. Timothy 4.20, where Paul says he had to leave somebody sick behind him in another place. More on this. In one sense, sickness came through Satan's deception of Adam and Eve. But John 9, verses 1 through 3, John 11, 4, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, that I just cited, tell us that at least sometimes God can use sickness for his purposes as well as using healing for his purposes. A specific example from Scripture. Most people miss this. Galatians 4, 13 and 14. Paul says to the Galatian church, the reason you even are a church, the reason I even came to you to start with is because I was sick and I had to come and convalesce and stay with you and you ministered to me while I was here. And he thanked them for it. Sounds like God used his sickness to plant a church. How many times have rebellious, sinful, and arrogant men and women turned to God in times of sickness? I believe it's an error to teach that God hates sickness as much as sin. To argue that is 
his will to heal every Christian of all diseases, no matter what, while in this mortal body, is a bold presumption that flies in the face of historical reality. But God still heals. He still does. Now, I want to share with you a couple of documented healing it's from New Heights Church, Fayetteville, via video. The first one is a close friend of mine and an elder of New Heights. And what happened was we were all in a, there's 25 or 30 of us in the prayer room in Fayetteville a couple of years ago in April. And uh, we were watching on a simulcast something called a Sousa Now. There was about 70,000 people in a stadium in Los Angeles. And someone goes up there and in the middle of the thing and says, let's just pray for people to be healed of, of uh, any kind of hearing problems. So you're going to hear the testimony of what happened to one of the New Heights elders when, uh, uh, what, how far is it from L.A. to Fayetteville? 1,500, 2,000 miles, long ways uh, in this little prayer room in Fayetteville when that happens. So let's roll that first video. It's short. In early April, we'd had a yard sale that day, and everybody knows the energy that it takes to do that and the work it takes. So we were pretty tired. That night, we had a shower to go through from one of our staff members, so Janie and I went to that. And uh, one of our other pastors were there, and we began to talk to them, ask them what they were going to do. And they said, well, we're going to the prayer room. Started feeling guilty and felt like, yeah, I needed to do that. There was a a simulcast that was going on that was going to last uh, just through that night. Sat down and began to listen to some of the worship music. Um, some people began to come up. Uh, this was Bethel um, Church out in California. And a man came up and said, um, I just feel this urging to uh, pray for some people. And are there any in the audience that have hearing problems? And uh, my wife has always accused me of having hearing problems, and I, I was afraid to admit it, but I did. And so they said, if you have a problem with your hearing, raise your hand. So I raised my hand. Before I knew it, there was a couple next to me that scooted over next to me and said, could we pray for you? And I'll have to admit, I was a little, I had some skepticism and maybe a little unbelief sometimes. You know, people say all the time they've been healed from this or that or the other. As the prayer finished, I noticed something had happened. This is unusual for me. Something happened right then. The music was just pounding in my head. So I asked my wife, did, did Dennis turn the music up? She said, I don't think so. And for about three weeks, I, I began to uh, just challenge that to make sure, you know, to test it, to see if my hearing had changed. And it had. I noticed myself turning the TV down. I could hear everything Janie was saying. She would walk out of the room and talk to me, and I could hear her. And what I discovered through that is even in my unbelief, in my skepticism, God loves me, and he wants me to know that regardless of how I am. He's faithful, and he's constant, and praise the Lord, he's healed my hearing. I'm Doug Herman. I'm one of the elders at New Heights, and I've been there since the very first day. <laughs>
the next video is a little bit longer, and uh, the girl's a little bit soft-spoken, but hang with it. She's a young mom, and we just, this just happened. We just interviewed her last week and made this video, but this is a great story, too. I had been struggling with gluten intolerance for five years, five-plus years, and that it was, it was intense. It meant I couldn't eat out anywhere. Very difficult to eat in anybody's house. Um, if I accidentally got some sort of sauce, I would be laid out for the rest of the day. The thing that was most impacting my life, though, was adrenal dysfunction, which meant that my body wasn't producing enough cortisol. I would crash around 3 in the afternoon. Um, it was really difficult to take care of my children. I was homeschooling them, but I had uh, what's called brain fog, so I had a hard time organizing my thoughts or thinking ahead of things. And my husband had to stay home. from. He started working from home and helping around the house. And then I also had a shoulder injury that was about a year old. Um, that it, it started as an injury, what I thought was an injury, but the doctors then told me it was osteoarthritis in my shoulder. I had a growing desire to be healed. So um, I always wanted all of those things to go away, but the desire within me to just have it finished, to be done, and to walk in wholeness and healing. I had friends that had gone out to Bethel, and one of them had been healed of gluten intolerance. And so this, this growing desire and hope that the Lord could totally restore me and he could you know, bring health and healing to our family because of that. So I, I told my husband I really wanted to go out to Bethel. We would usually fast and pray at the beginning of every year. So I said, can we go the first weekend in January, January? 2018, um, and just just seek God and ask Him to heal me. At the time, it wasn't possible. We didn't have enough money. We needed someone to take care of our kids while we were gone. So I started sharing it with um, the ladies in my homeschool group and just telling them I believe God wanted us to go. Uh, he was going to do something amazing, and um, I asked them to pray with me on um, that God would release the finances to go. Those ladies got together and gave us a gift, a financial gift, which made it possible. Um, and then the Lord brought in everything else we needed. He brought in Grandpa from Colorado, which had never happened before, to watch the kids. And when they gave us the gift, they also gave me a necklace, and it had a pendant on it that said hope. And they said they prayed for me and um, said that they were going to stand in faith with me that God would heal. So we got to Bethel. We went to, it's called the Healing Rooms, and when it was my turn to be prayed for, the team came and got me. I had written down my three needs, um, and I had also asked God that if he, if he healed me, if he would let me know that he healed me. A lady said that she saw a red and white checkered picnic blanket out on, a, out on the grass with a basket, picnic basket on top, and a huge baguette sticking out of it. And they asked God, what does that mean? And they felt he wanted to heal someone of gluten intolerance. But he said to them, there's a, there's a picnic blanket, and it's red and white checkered, red for my blood, and it's checkered because I wanted to say, check it off your list. And so that really immediately spoke to me because it was was something I really wanted and I wanted to know that it was done. So they prayed for me 
and I knew I was healed of that. Next, the, one, the lady on my right had um, been healed one month prior of the same adrenal dysfunction that I had. She had the same symptoms, same problems, and she had been healed. So she um, encouraged me in her faith and then prayed over me, and I knew that I was healed of that. They, they knew from my page that I wrote on that I had children, but they didn't know anything other than that. And so one lady said to me, she said, do you, do you have a son named Tom? And my oldest son, who's seven, his name is Thomas. Thomas really struggles with gluten intolerance as well. And in his seven-year-old world, it's a big deal because he can't eat cake at birthday parties <laughs> and, and pizza and all of those things that his friends can have. And it's been really hard on him, especially lately. And they said, okay. And they prayed over him. And, um, and later when we went home, he, he was totally healed of that. So after, after they prayed for me, I, I, I told my husband, let's go have pizza. So we went directly to a pizza place and we had deep dish pizza and it, to me, it tasted delicious, and I had no, I had no problems after that. I I had more energy than I'd had in years. Um, my husband would fall asleep before I did. I I was filled with energy, and I since then I haven't had any problems with adrenal fatigue. I can wake up early in the morning, stay up as long as I need to, get the right amount of sleep, and still have still have plenty of energy. So we went to a class on Sunday morning that they have for people to learn how to hear the voice of the Lord, um, how the Lord heals, things like that. And um, there was a gentleman there. He was glowing. And so they, they had asked everyone, all right, if you hear a word from the Lord um, on something he wants to do, wants to heal, you just need to stand up and share it. And so he stood up. And he was so excited, and he said, I see a shoulder. God wants to heal a shoulder. And um, it, was, it was for me. They asked me how I was doing, and I was like, well, I don't know. And I was asking the Lord, and he said, I want you to use it. And, and I love working out. And so the, the thing that came to my mind on how to use it, which I hadn't been able to do in a long time, was push-ups. So I did push-ups, and I could do it with no pain. Um, which was incredible, and so I've had no, no pain. I can, I can work out. I can, I can lift my kids, and I, I have no pain in my shoulder anymore. So your shoulders also completely healed. I got lots more stories, but no more time. Uh, what she didn't tell you was that guy that got that word. One of the things he's shown wasn't just the Holy Spirit. He was covered in tats and bling. He was a former Hispanic gang member that had never been to a meeting like that. He had just become a Christian a few weeks before. Conclusions about all this. I'll give you 11. <laughs> Number one, divine healing is often more associated with movements of God into a new culture or a culture that's become spiritually stagnant to credential the gospel. An example, there are tons of them from church history. The Indonesian revivals of 1966 through 68 and 2015, 2016 had hundreds, maybe thousands of documented healings associated with them. The Mongolian awakening, when the gospel, 
I don't know how to do this, was first brought to Mongolia. The missionary was used a guy by the name of Brian Hogan. Some of you may know him. He goes to New Heights, Fayetteville. Wrote a book about this. And the way the movement started was uh, he was there. He actually lost a child there on the field, died. And uh, some Russian schoolgirls wanted to do a mission trip. <laughs> and they called him or got a hold of him somehow, email or something, and said they wanted to come down there with little notice. And so they came down there. He didn't know what to do with them. So he said, well, why don't you just go to the hospitals and start praying for the sick? Well, they did. <laughs> the sick started being healed. And a revival broke out in Mongolia. And before, there was only a handful of Christians. And now there's thousands of Christians. That's how it started. Number two, divine healing is often more common when there's intense persecution of Christians like the Scottish Covenanteers. Or the Chinese home churches for the last 50 to 100 years under communism. If you ever talked to Chinese Christians or been there, the way that many of them came first, certainly a decade or two ago, they'd get healed right when they were saved. <laughs> it was just kind of commonplace. Number three, divine healing is more common with Christian subcultures that are more holy and devout in their lifestyles and are actively reaching out like the Moravians. Number four, divine healing is more common to Christians that are more dependent on God because they have less access to medical help like third world Christians today. Number five, divine healing is sometimes associated sometimes with consistent prayer or faith by the people who are seeking the healing from God. Sometimes it's a sick person. Sometimes it's people who are praying for them. Number six, divine healing is sometimes more associated with certain people who seem to exhibit Gifts of healing. In my lifetime, one of the people I admire the most is who had, someone who had the gift of healing called John Wimber, if you know much about him, and other people that I've already mentioned, and more. Number seven, many people who exhibit these gifts of healing do not experience the same degree of health and healing they're able to give to others through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you three specific examples. John Wimber struggled with heart disease most of his life, and he was completely incapacitated the last year of his life with it, and still God used him to heal people. Another specific example, Bill Johnson, senior pastor Bethel's son, Eric, has numerous times laid hands on people, and they've been healed of deafness and hearing problems. It seems to be one of the things they do out there most successfully. And Eric is about 85 to 90% deaf himself, and can only hear with hearing aids, and when he preaches, he preaches with a lisp. Another lady that I know personally named Ms. Elsie, a few of you may know her. She was a very unique healer, came to New Heights several times, ministered to lots of people, and she was very old and very sick. And yet I saw God heal people dramatically through her ministry. She literally couldn't stand up. Her balance was so bad. She could only walk fast or run to a chair and sit down. Yet God used her as an agent of healing. There's a mystery around a lot of this. Number seven, well, number eight, God can use sickness as he uses healing again for his purposes. Romans 8, 28. Specific case examples from scripture, Job, Paul, Nebuchadnezzar. Number nine, sometimes illness can be tied to sin, but not always. Particularly, I've seen it tied to the sin of unforgiveness in my own family. And when the sin is dealt with, the mental illness, the symptoms, the emotional sickness, or the physical sickness goes away. Cases from Scripture, Asa, Nebuchadnezzar, and Uzziah from the Old Testament. Number 10, 
In modern history, God has used medical discoveries, doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers to bring healing to many people. I know those are not miraculous, but it's been allowed or directed by God in his sovereignty. Number 11, the only ultimate physical healing, the healing to the uttermost, the total victory over the curse occurs when this mortal body dies and we're physically present with the Lord. The Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Our bodies are wasting away, unfortunately. Application. We're going to have a healing service for the next 15 to 20 minutes. And as John Wimber said, everybody gets to play. <laughs> it's not just for the gifted and anointed. So I'm going to give you some specific instructions on what we do. And I'm going to have you stand in just a few minutes, but not, not yet. And I'll pray a prayer for us. And we'll have a little time of confession, and then we'll move into a time where we pray for one another's healing. I saw this done uh, a few weeks ago, and I experienced some healing. I won't go into details of that story at another church at a meeting, and it's real easy. But before that, we're going to obey the book of James. And back in that corner is going to be some of your elders, their wives, some prayer team members, some of the leaders of your church. And they're going to have oil, and if you want to be anointed with oil and be prayed over as Scripture commands for anything, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational healing, or breaking of any change of addiction of any type, go back there and be prayed over. Uh, Pam and I will be standing out here if, if you want to come and be prayed over by us for some reason. And some of you, as the Spirit leads, just go pray randomly for people. But here's the way we're all going to get involved. If you have any kind of need for any kind of prayer of healing of any type, when we stand up, be bold enough to just place your hand. You don't even have to raise your hand. Just place your hand over your heart and hold it there. And then people around you can just lay hands on you. If you want to tell them your need, fine. You don't have to. And they'll just pray over you. And we'll ask God to move in this room this morning supernaturally in divine ways. So we're all going to be involved in this healing. Now, communion, again, will be available around the room like it always is. Please take this opportunity to engage in prayers of healing and get prayed over yourself. Now, if everybody puts their hand over the heart, we're going to have to take turns, okay? Probably everybody needs to for some reason or another. I've got some issues. Uh, so let's start with a prayer as the worship team comes up. And I'm going to give you just a minute to do the First John 1, 9 thing and confess your sins to the Lord, and he'll be faithful to just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's just spend a moment in confession. Spirit, come. Jesus, I ask you to release in this room healing this morning. We're being obedient to your word. We believe that you still heal. We believe that you can and want to do great and good things to show your goodness. And I ask that you bring healing in this room. Pour out the oil of healing in this room this morning. I ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, believing that you hear my prayers. I'm not just being religious or putting on a show. I'm speaking the most powerful being in the universe. I ask you to act in a miraculous way now and in the days ahead in the lives of these people. And we'll give a testimony 
of your goodness and your power while we're in the land of the living. I ask it in Jesus Christ's strong name.